Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The 1988 film Rain Man captured the country's attention. The film won numerous Academy Awards, but it was actor Dustin Hoffman's portrayal of a man diagnosed with autism in the film Rain Man that got people talking. Still, it presented a limited perspective. The experiences of people on the autism spectrum vary widely. Each one is unique. There's a new documentary out called In a Different Key, which follows the life of Donald Triplett, the first person to be diagnosed with autism nearly 100 years ago. Nashville Public Television is carrying this tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Joining me now are a few local folks who have firsthand experience. Lynn Bingham is on the autism spectrum and is senior lecturer in teaching music at the University of Vanderbilt University's Blair School of Music. And Dr. Teresa Vasquez, a.k.a. Dr. T, is a parent of an autistic son. Lynn, Dr. T, thank you for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Yeah, so excited to be here. Really great to have you both. So, Lynn, let me ask you. How long have you known you were on the autism spectrum? I was diagnosed as an adult in my early 40s, so about uh, 10, 20 years ago. Well, talk to me more about what that means for you. Um, Basically, it just answered a lot of questions about uh, about issues in my life, things that were uh, positive attributes of my life and things that are for diff- things that I had different challenges with as well. How'd you feel when you when you got the diagnosis? I felt a little bit relieved um, for having an answer and then a little bit confused as well about now what. Mm. So you're a musician. Mm-hmm. How has your diagnosis, how has your autism informed your work as a musician? So I believe, so one of the hallmark um, um, characteristics of autism are um, restricted interests and repetitive behaviors. And um, for me, as a young child, I was extremely interested and motivated by music. And so I was focused on music 110% of the day, mm-hmm. um, you know, eight days a week, as it were. And uh, I think that that intense interest really sparked the motivation for me to learn and to, and to acquire the skills that I eventually ended up using as a professional. I read somewhere that you taught yourself how to play by observing bass players. I did, actually. So um, the story is um, I grew up in rural Williamson County back in the days when Williamson County was kind of rural and poor. Um, and um, I had discovered a set of recordings that my parents had um, of the nine symphonies of Beethoven. And by the age of eight, I had them all memorized and I could tell you what movement from mm. what key and all in what key they were in and all those kind of things. But um, I was especially um, intrigued by this low pitched instrument and I had yet to identify what it was until one evening I could, I was able to get the rabbit ears on the television adjusted just right so I could get the public television station here in Nashville. And they had Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Symphony. And as the camera panned over, I was able to realize that it was the double bass that, that was what, what, what intrigued me so. 
And by because I had absolute pitch and because I could watch what the bass players are doing, I actually understood how the instrument functioned um, before I had my first opportunity to really um, have the opportunity to play one when I was in college. Mm, and you just kind of, first time you touched one, you just went on from there, huh? I did. I um, actually I was observing the orchestra, which is the first time I'd ever heard one live. And um, after I was outside and it was a beautiful day and I was um, observing through the window. It was open. And after it was over, the rehearsal was over, I left and I heard these footsteps pounding down the pavement behind me. And it was the conductor. And he said, who are you and why are you here? And hmm. I said, oh, I was just listening to your rehearsal. And I, I sort of play the bass, which in my head I did. Hmm. And he said, that's great. We could use another bass player, go upstairs and get an instrument and come down and play for me. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> now I'm in trouble because I'd never really, you know, had really ever touched one. So... Um, I kind of kind of sawed my way through a couple of things. And he said, you know what, I'll give you some lessons and you can, um, you know, play in the orchestra. And so that's what started that um, wonderful trajectory away from engineering school where I was actually miserable as a student. Wow. So. Wow. That's pretty that's pretty cool. You know, Dr. T, I understand that your son has given you his blessing to be here today. Is that right? Yes, he has. Um, that's I find that very important when I'm going to be speaking about him um, when he is not present. So, yes, he did provide his permission. Tell me why that's so important for you. It's important on a bunch of different levels, because, I mean, as human beings, you know, if we're going to be speaking about something as personal as um, a diagnosis or anything that relates to someone's uniqueness of who they are as an individual, I just think as a human, you know, we should give respect to each other in that way, um, especially um, if it's a human uh, relationship like a parent-child relationship because I think as parents we feel like we own the story of our kids mm. right especially those um, who are dealing with things that um, like autistic people deal with right mm -hmm. um, and so really early on you know he asked I had the story when he was a young boy he asked me you know if I could teach him how to be brave and um, it was really one of those those things where I was like oh my gosh like I don't even know how to be brave <laughs> like mm. how can we do that and at that point I think we both established this connection that we were going to be, you know, partners in this journey. And at that moment, we decided that, you know, if I were to speak about him or speak on his behalf, even um, that he would grant me permission to do that. And so um, that started when he was about eight years old. And I just think that it's important to his integrity as a as a man, um, as a grown adult um, person that, you know, he'd be given that that level of respect. So tell me, how did you feel when he first got the diagnosis? You know, I get this question all the time because, you know, a lot of parents have said, you know, how did you deal with that, that thing? And honestly, I was just, I was upset. Like I was angry because when I got the diagnosis, I was told that I should grieve my child, the child that I'll never have. Hmm. Um, and that as a parent, you know, that I should take the time to do that. And some parents rightfully do that um, and, and, and might need that. But I think for me, the reason that I felt very upset by that was because I'm I'm looking at this young person, right, whom I love dearly, and we're talking as if he doesn't exist anymore. 
um, and that, you know, who he is. And even though, you know, he might be a little different, he might view the world in different ways that now I should, you know, grieve him. And he's sitting here and we're talking about him as if he's not sitting there. Um, and so this, this, this anger just rose inside of me that was like, okay, there has to be another perspective to this. You know, there has to be another way for parents to understand that their kids have been diagnosed with something, but still at the same time, that doesn't mean that life is over. It just means that life might be a little bit different. I mean, in my case, a little bit more exciting than, <laughs> than I may have, you know, and I'm, and I'm not painting a beautiful picture of, you know, being a parent of an autistic person, it, you know, it being beautiful and rainbows and, you know, and all those other things. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm saying is, is that whenever you care for someone, right, I feel like you should uh, be the embodiment of respect and just understanding that people are not going to be the same, mm -hmm. you know, can you, um, can you so, tell us a little bit I'm more sorry. about your son? Tell us more about Ramel. Oh my gosh. Ramel is, he is a loving, um, he, he tells me grown. Well, I won't say what he calls me, but he's a grown man. Right. So he's very loving. He's very, um, empathetic and, um, but he's also very direct. He is a lover of all things, science and math. Um, he has one of those memories where if he sees something and he can make a connection to it, he never forgets it. Um, like our Wi-Fi password, which is like 25 characters long. Mm -hmm. So anytime we need that, we just call Ramel and he just spits it all for us. Okay. Um, but he's also just very, you know, you can tell that he's, he's trying to find his way in the world right now as well. Um, because he is, you know, he's 21 years old and we've, you know, had some shifts going from high school into college and trying to figure out, you know, what happens next. And so you can just see that that's weighing on him as well. Um, you know, so he's a, he's a typical, I would say he's a nor, he loves to play video games. Um, you know, and he loves to, to watch movies. That's one of our family pastimes, mm -hmm. but you know, he is a as normal as I would consider normal for any any person, you know, because um, we all have, you know, differences. So mm -hmm. now, Lynn, you're doing some really interesting research. Can you tell me about that? So part of my um, experiences musically as a young child was um, listening to my mother play piano. And she played a lot just about every day. And I could just never sit still um, while she played. And I just would move all over the place and dance around the room, and I was in constant motion. Um, and between that and um, being a conductor and sitting in the back of the bass section for many years, and you know when you sit in the back of the bass section, you spend a lot of time counting measures rest and not doing much. Um, so I was always observing what was going on. Um, around me. And so I noticed that, um, you know, we would have a you know, guest conductor or someone come in and then um, the orchestra would, would, even from the very first note, sound different. And so I was really curious about the relationship between gesture mm -hmm. and sound. Well, well, we'll pick this up after the break. All right, we're going to take a really quick break. Question, are you on the autism spectrum? Do you have a loved one who is? Share your experience with us and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We are talking this hour about autism and the advances made over the last hundred years in understanding neurodivergence. Over that time, more resources for people on the spectrum and their families have emerged, and Middle Tennessee has been a national leader on that front. Now, 
Lynn Bingham is still with us. He's a musician and professor. And before the break, Lynn, you were talking about movement and how it informs your research. Can you go ahead and tell me a little bit more about that? So I've noticed through time that um, as different conductors conduct different, um, conduct the same orchestra, that the orchestra reacts differently. And something about their gesture, and my, and my question happened to be, what is it about gesture that we perceive in a musical way? And I also wondered if people with autism um, perceived gesture musically as well. So I designed a study in which um, I made uh, videos of myself doing different, uh, performing different gestures. And I showed these video recordings to children with and without autism. And I made recordings of their vocal responses to those gestures. Mm. And um, then I randomized them all and played them for an expert panel of reviewers. And we found out that um, we could tell between 82 and 96 percent of the time which gesture the child was watching just by the way they said a nonsense syllable. And so the interesting thing was because most of the literature, pretty much all the literature, says that children with autism do not perceive body movements and body motions and gestures, um, that they actually perceived a musical gesture just as well, and in some cases better than neurotypical children. Wow. Wow, that's really intriguing. Hmm. So the hope is that we may be able to use this in an, as an application in teaching music um, to children in a nonverbal way. Mm-hmm. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Jessica Moore is the parent of a 13-year-old autistic son and the executive director of Autism Tennessee. Jessica, thanks for being here, and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. You know, tell us a little bit more about Autism Tennessee. How does the organization work with the community? So Autism Tennessee was started back in 20, um, 20 or excuse me, 1997. Okay. <laughs> um, we became a nonprofit in 2008. And the way that we began is still the foundation of what we do today, which is helping connect individuals and families to the resources that will help make them as independent and successful in life as possible. So that... Today, that looks, you know, it, it comes across in a couple of different ways. We have our helpline, which we field calls and have uh, conversations one-on-one via phone, text, email, and uh, social media messaging, where we get questions and uh, just resource requests from all over the state and sometimes the country when people are, yeah. you know, moving to the Nashville area. Um that's a huge portion of what we do, but we also have our teen and adult programming where we actually work with and provide uh, social networking opportunities and learning opportunities for teens and adults on the spectrum. And, um, you know, those social networking opportunities, especially for families, include social events. Um, so something as easy as game day where individuals can come in and we just have a relaxed board game session. Mm-hmm. And it's just a way for individuals to connect um, and just really have those and practice those social interactions in a, you know, non-competitive um, way. What are some of the biggest questions people have when they contact your organization? So, the biggest question we still get to this day is where can I find more information? Where can I find diagnostic resources? That's still the biggest call that we get. And we get it from, in, you know, parents and caregivers as well as, you know, adults that are, learning more about autism and thinking that, you know, I I might fall into this category. You know, I might be neurodivergent just based on my life history. Mm -hmm. And so that's still the biggest question we get. Now, 
Lynn, in addition to being a musician and professor, you are also the chair of the Tennessee Autism Council. What areas are you all focused on? So we're looking at um, autism spectrum across the lifespan. And so we're looking at advocacy. Um, we're looking at early childhood intervention and education. We're looking at health care issues and also for aging and adulthood and employment for over 100,000 Tennesseans with autism. Mm. Now, Dr. Teresa Vasquez is still with us. Dr. T, you, as we were learning earlier, you're the parent of an autistic child, your son. What kind of support have you been able to find? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think... The school system was a really good uh, resource for us while he was in K through 12. Um, but we were able to find, um, you know, other avenues as well. Autism Tennessee, um, actually, when he was younger, I was a part of that as well. Um, I, it's exciting to see someone else here talking about that because I think you all also offer, I think, some adult uh, social services and things of that nature that we've been considering as well. Um, but the community that surrounds him basically around his uh, educational um, aspects is really where we focused. Uh, Nashville State is where he's at, and they have been really, really critical and key um, to helping him be successful as he, you know, matriculates through college and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, we've really been focused on uh, assistive technologies, which is where you know, my passion and my research has kind of led me um, and our family. And so as we have moved forward or through, we've tried to empower him to also not only self-advocate, but be an advocate on behalf of um, others with autism as well. And so, you know, as we keep moving through, um, just making sure that we're a part of those communities and, um, you know, making sure that his voice um, is is being amplified, I think is part of what our mission kind of has been for him. Um, because, you know, that fear that every parent has about, you know, not being around or, you know, who will support him, you know, if things go right, like that's just a nagging fear every single day, every single moment of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've just tried to make sure that, you know, we aligned with things that were, um, you know, kind of like making acceptance be, I think, the the basics, the basis of where or the foundation of where everything lies. Um, but the, you know, the Frist Center um, for Autism and Innovation, um, I'm on that board as well. And so they are doing some wonderful things. There's just really great pockets of resources here in Nashville for families and for parents. But I know the school systems have really been uh, critical and key for our success as a family. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about about living with autism and the resources and advancements here in Middle Tennessee. Join the conversation by tweeting us at this is Nashville. So, you know, Jessica, what are what are some of the gaps in services that Tennessee provides to neurodivergent people? There is a provider shortage. Um, we actually talk about this on the Autism Council. Autism Tennessee serves as a community member on the council. And uh, we, we do have conversations about why there is a provider shortage. Um, individuals looking for, it, it, whether it's speech therapy, occupational therapy, applied behavior analysis, um, there, there's just not enough because what, the calls that we get on our helpline indicate that, you know, most, if not all, at some point have a wait list. Mm. Um, you know, you might be waiting, and this applies to diagnostic work as well, um, you know, there are times when, you know, 
people are looking for evaluation services and have to wait six months to 18 months just to even get in for initial consultation. That's a long time. It, it really is. And you're missing a lot of valuable time when you're waiting on those wait lists when you could be in therapy, you know, getting the services that you need. What are some ways to kind of close this gap when it comes to provider availability? What can the state do to help generate more providers? That's a good question. And that's something that we, you know, that we are looking into. Um, I think the first step in what we're trying to do on the council is to find out why we have the shortage to begin with. Mm-hmm. Once we really have, I think, have the answers to that question, I'm sure there's going to be multiple reasons. Um, but once we have those answers, we'll be able to take that data to the state legislator and say, this this is what we're finding and hopefully be able to come up with some suggestions on how we can help fix that situation. Now, Lynn, as Jessica was talking, I saw you nodding in agreement. Where do you see the gaps? Um, they, I see gaps in lots of places. Um, one of our, <clears throat> our goals is to basically do sort of um, some baseline research and trying to find out, you know, from parents and from self-advocates uh, where, where the gaps are. And we, looking at, as I mentioned, all those different areas that we talked about before, finding gaps in all of those places, and we're just doing lots of research trying to figure out why things, where gaps occur and why, Um, especially in our rural areas. Those are the places that I think we find most of our challenges um, because there just aren't services available for those children um, and for those those, uh, individuals. So... It's a real challenge for us, and we've got 30 people working diligently in all of these issues and all these areas trying to find find out where they are. Now, Dr. T was mentioning how appreciative she and her family are for the school system and what they were able to provide for her son. Do you feel like the schools are well-equipped to really effectively assist students on the spectrum? I really don't think they are as, as well, uh, and I think it's spotty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it depends upon the local association of the students. So some some places, particularly in metro areas, have a lot more than places in the rural counties do. So it just it's kind of hit and miss. Would you say? Would you agree? Jessica? I agree one hundred percent. We've got schools and individual teachers that are amazing and are doing great work with their students, and we have other school systems that we repeatedly get calls from that we need IEP help, individual education plan help. Um, These parents are not being taken seriously. They sometimes, you know, their children are being, for lack of a better word, swept under the rug, or they're flying right under that radar too, where they're just not seen as needing the the same resources as, you know, a a child that's more severely impacted. So there's a lot of reasons. Now, Dr. T, there's a moment Mm -hmm. in the film in A Different Key that talked about the difficulties in getting a diagnosis for black and brown families. Yes. Have you experienced anything like that? I have. um, But can I can I say um, to to the point that um, that the other guests were just making about the school services? I feel like that is absolutely actually accurate. Um, I have had a good situation because I was an advocate, right? I was able to go through Vanderbilt um, has a program so that you can learn about, um, you know, the law associated with getting the services that you needed. Um, And so I was able to advocate and in some ways advocate on behalf of other families. But like that is a big deal. It it is an issue um, because I actually almost got burnt out, you know, having to, 
you know, um, advocate for other yeah. families or actually be involved in those things because of the lack of resources. Um, speaking to our specific situation, I think because of the nature of, you know, who I am and the studies and stuff that I was doing, I think that the, um, the educational institutions were more readily like willing to help um, with that. But that is not the case, I don't think, for, you know, for everyone who goes through that. So I, I want to make sure that that I do provide that clarity because there were times where, you know, I had to fight mm-hmm. um, and put on war paint is what I kind of say, you know, ready. Here's the IEP meeting of the year. OK, what are we doing this year? So um, so I definitely, you know, um, feel that as well. But to the black and brown um, communities, absolutely. I think that there's there are a few things associated with that. Um the, you know, adultification, I think, of our kids is a part of that, um, where, you know, um, kids really early on are labeled, especially in the black and brown communities, you know, to be um, aggressive or, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and so rather than thinking, oh, they're just bad or they're bad behavior, you know, we don't look at it as thinking, oh, there might actually be, you know, some type of thing that we should try to look into. Right. So there's that. And then there's also the community as a whole um, and acceptance within the black and brown communities because I know when we were looking for a diagnosis for for my son because I knew that you know something just wasn't quite right Mm -hmm. Um, and that I don't think I did not think it was a behavioral issue because obviously he had you know the ability to understand right from wrong there was something else going on the lack of support that I had within the black community was also um, astounding to me Um, and so I think you know some of us are we we believe that you know we can handle that internally but when really what we need to be doing is looking for services. Um, but then when you do start your look um, or start to look again, it, it, it's just hard. You know, the start is hard. I got lucky. Um, I happened to be doing a lot of research. I had my kids in the library all the time with me because I was, you know, determined to figure out, you know, what this thing was. And I ran across an, uh, a, a journal by Temple Grandin. Um, and so I reached out to Vanderbilt and just got lucky to be included into a research study. Mm-hmm. Um, but had that not happened, I, I can't say that the trajectory of our path would have been um, the way that it went. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, part of that is because, you know, we, we tend to look at kids, you know, black and brown specifically as them being troublemakers and not necessarily needing the kind of help that, you know, that would look like, you know, an autism diagnosis or anything like that, neural divergence of any sort. Well, we're going to have to end it here. I want to thank my guests. That is Dr. Teresa Vasquez, a.k.a. Dr. T. I want to thank Dr. Emmeline Bingham, Principal Senior Lecturer in Music Theory and Cognition at Vanderbilt University and Chair of the Tennessee Autism Council, and Jessica Moore with the Aut- with Autism Tennessee. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Thank really you so appreciate much. It. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about ongoing research around autism and find out how neurodivergent people are making it in the workplace. Are you on the autism spectrum? What's your work experience like? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
We've been talking this hour about autism, what it's like to live on the spectrum, and what resources are available to folks who need them. Now, many of these resources are tied to school. So when neurodivergent folks graduate and move on, there aren't as many supports in place. So now let's talk about what it's like for autistic people when it comes to finding work and finding ways to thrive in the workplace. To help us learn more, I'd like to welcome my guests. Tim Vogus is Deputy Director of Vanderbilt Frist Center for Autism and Innovation. Ernie Dianastasis is the CEO of The Precisionists, a company with a majority neurodivergent staff. And Henry Nichols is a project leader at The Precisionists. Tim, Ernie, Henry, thank you all for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for Thanks having for us. us. Thank you. Really great to have you all. So, Henry, I'd like to start with you. Tell me, what is it? what was it like for you getting your diagnosis for autism? Well, it's interesting. I um, I would say that my formative years, I started, uh, I think I started seeing a psychiatrist uh, thanks to my parents around age six or seven. And I was originally diagnosed with ADHD, I think when I was six or seven, probably around middle school OCD. And then finally in late middle school, probably closer to early high school, I want to say uh, Asperger's and then obviously everything, which I agree with according to the new DSM is ASD now mm -hmm. uh, classified. So, you know, it's really a constellation um, of, of, of things. I, I think at that point I felt like <laughs> I, by the time I had gotten that diagnosis, I'd already felt a little bit like an oddity and a guinea pig. I was on different <laughs> uh, cocktails of medications growing up. And that's just how it was back then. That was the psychiatric, uh, pedi pediatric psychiatric climate in the 90s and early aughts. So I understand, like, as you got older and you went to college, you know, you started appreciating yourself differently and in ways that you weren't really aware of earlier on. Talk to me about that time in your life. You know, I think a key thing was when I was in college, I made the active choice to get off medications. Mm. I think that I was used to in the community that I grew up in, um, making, you know, a square peg fit around whole behaviorally. Uh, and I think that that was the, not just from the psychiatric standpoint, but the teaching, the education system, that was their standpoint of how do we get these kids to adapt the way that we think, the way, how do we get them to act like assimil, uh, assimilated neurotypicals. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I can't, I can only speak for myself because as the saying goes, if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of conditioned shame that we have to work through, uh, you know, whether it's being specifically ASD or just neurodiversity in general, because I don't want to shut out the other types of neurodiversity that are equally valid and having to adapt to neurotypical constructs. Um, but as you get older and give yourself grace, you know, you realize that a lot of that emanates from society's insistence on fitting you into a box that, in my opinion, God didn't intend to fit you into. Mm. Now, what do you enjoy most about working at the Precisionists? Oh, I would say the, the people are great. I, I think in this current role, and I've been working in enterprise project and pro, uh, product management a lot the last few years. Um, you know, had a lot of... Uh, you know, hairy assignments and work that I feel good about, but I was really looking for culture, mm. a, a culture fit. I think a lot of people can identify neuro, you know, neurodiverse or not out there. And uh, from my first interactions with Ernie and the rest of the leadership team, I felt I had support that I didn't in other roles, that they wanted to understand me, that there mm -hmm. wasn't, that there was an understanding that he may think differently, but that doesn't mean that his thought contributions are any less because it's because it's coming from a different angle. 
uh, than what we're used to. Now, um, now, Ernie, you're the CEO. I understand the origin story for the Precisionist starts in Denmark. Tell me more. Yeah, two Ds, Den Delaware and Denmark. Okay. <laughs> so the Precisionist is based in Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, an interesting beginning to it. Well, first of all, we're, we're an IT and business services company that is focused on growing 10,000 careers for neurodiverse individuals over the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. We got started in Delaware, um, and the way we ended up connecting with a company in Denmark is at the time, the, the governor of Delaware, Jack Markell, introduced me to a gentleman from Denmark who was working on some very innovative approaches to find, assess, train, and employ autistic individuals into technology jobs. So that's how it all got started. And he came to, to Delaware, spent some time, learned the model that he was working on, and we began to adopt some of those principles. Now, there's a scene in Rain Man where Ray, the main character, like quickly and correctly counts hundreds of toothpicks that fell on the floor. And this scene, it really gave people a lot of misconceptions about how autism works in some people. But you get to work and train with people on the spectrum. So tell me, what areas do people on the spectrum really excel in? Yeah, and Henry said it right when he said, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. But what I think is that what that scene highlighted was just the incredible strengths that many individuals on the spectrum have and pattern recognition, attention to detail, uh, being able to find a defect in a lot in a lot of data, precision. These are all wonderful strengths, but because of the challenges of the neurodiversity, they haven't been put in a position to utilize those strengths, and that's what we're doing. What are some of the challenges they face in the workplace? Well, the underemployment and the unemployment numbers are 75 to 80 percent for neurodivergent individuals, mm. and in part it's because the first five minutes of an HR interview, a traditional interview, can be a career killer for someone who's neurodiverse and would ha have a struggle to get through that interview. And yet, eye contact, comfort, uh, all those things have no bearing whether somebody could be a great software developer or, or not. Mm -hmm. And so we don't do the traditional HR interview. What, that was one of the things we've done. What do you do? How do you adapt that? We, we give each individual that's interested in our company a project to do. And our folks are trained to understand and figure out, here's the crux of the whole discussion. It's how to figure out that individual's strengths, mm -hmm. not their challenges or their weaknesses, but if we can figure out their strengths and we put them through a three or four week assessment and training program to develop those strengths, their odds of successful employment go up exponentially. Now, Tim, how important is employment when it comes to people with autism? It's extremely important, and it's important in terms of just uh, life outcomes, in terms of mental health, sense of meaning, sense of community, because you heard in the prior segments where people sometimes after exiting a school system experience a services cliff and a real drop-off in kind of connection, and employment can provide those kind of things. And so the research shows that there increases in kind of life satisfaction and overall well-being that result from employment. And then also in terms of like people being able to be independent and be the authors of their own lives, it makes a big difference too in terms of like cost to society and the benefit to society that gets realized by all this incredible talent 
being put to mm. these kind of varied uses in a whole range of professions. Now, what do employers have to consider when hiring a person who's on the autism spectrum? Yep. So one of the big things that Henry mentioned right, uh, just a couple of minutes ago was about he was looking for a culture fit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so one of the things that gets in the way and one of the things that Ernie's been so innovative with in getting rid of the employment interview is a lot of culture fit is about superficial similarity to people who are already in the organization. So if you want, instead, what we advocate, so with the Frist Center, when we work with employers, we try to get them to think about cultural contribution. So what are the unique things that any given individual can bring to that organization to evolve its culture, to make it more inclusive, to make it more innovative and more productive? So I think that's a shift in mindset that organizations need to encounter. And then they need to rethink, as Ernie has done, some of those things that we just take for granted around interviews, around uh, how expectations are set, how feedback is given inside organizations. People just need to be more direct, clearer, more explicit in what they are seeking and why it's important. And then guess what? They're going to open up a whole new world. Now, Henry, when Tim was talking about the superficial nature of many workplace cultures, you gave the big thumbs up (laughs) in agreeance. Talk to me about how that really resonated with you. Well, one thing that people really uh, misunderstand about neurodiverse people, people on the spectrum, um, you know, and this is my experience, and I see it in my direct reports as well, who I'm coaching and training, is, you know, people on the spectrum are very authentic. The way they look at things from a very fundamental level is very honest, very straightforward, without the nuance or game playing that goes on in a lot of office politics. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced this first on where I feel like I've called, you know, as a project manager, I'm supposed to hold stakeholders accountable and make sure we're tracking against things. But sometimes I'm not supposed to hold that person accountable uh, or I'm not observing, you know, I've, I'm doing exactly what I should do, but maybe I'm not catching the the, the hidden clicks and, and the hidden power dynamics that are there. And I just think that a lot of people on the spectrum don't give a tuss about that. And, and, and I think that they see that it's superficial. It's not just that they don't get it, it's they don't accept it. Mm. And morally, should we accept it? That's a good question. That's a good question for all of us. Now, I've got under a minute left. So, Ernie, tell me real quick how can employers prepare their organizations to bring in more neurodivergent people into the workforce? Well, uh, there are tri- a lot of wonderful jobs, whether it's IT, cybersecurity, data analytics, data entry, even scanning documents, a wide range of jobs that every company needs to do. And this workforce is very, very good at doing it. So um, the most important thing is for, uh, if there's an interest in that, is to really uh, get in touch with an organization like ours that can help them navigate them through that roadmap to make it happen, the successful outcomes for employment. Really quick, Tim, we've got about maybe 15 seconds. What kind of advances are the Frist Center working on? So we're working on things at the intersection of technology, innovation, and organizational transformation. So rethinking those things that Ernie's rethought around interview processes and collaboration in organizations, and we're using technology in partnership with kind of new workplace practices to get there. So that research is ongoing. I want to thank my guests, Tim Vogus with the Vanderbilt Frist Center for Artism and Innovation. I want to thank Henry Nichols and Ernie DeAnastasis with the Precisionists. Thank you all again for being here. I wish we had more time. 
We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we've all seen the freight trains that cut through parts of Nashville, but rail was once a main source of transportation within the city. And we'll explore that history. This is Nashville. It's a production of WPLN and WPLN News. Find, listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director, and our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music. Special thanks to Kayvon Stassen and Paige Farrer. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. This is Nashville. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other. <laughs>